Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Shoba Wadia as she presents Immigration, Rights, and Wrongs. Good afternoon. I would like to first thank Melissa B.D. Moss, I hope I'm saying that right, for inviting me to be part of the Dynamic Research Unplugged series, and to all of you for participating in today's discussion. It is an honor. To lay a brief foundation for the topic of today's lecture, let me start off with a few potentially dry facts. The primary source for immigration law is the Immigration and Nationality Act, or the INA. It's a book that's been compared second in complication to the US tax code. <laughs> Congress passed the INA in 1952. And since that time, the INA has been amended or changed over the years. Notably, the, notably, the most controversial changes to the INA have happened during politically volatile moments in U.S. history. For example, the Oklahoma City bombing, the World Trade Center bombing, the attacks following September 11, 2001. During these moments, or rather their aftermaths, immigrants have become, became a target of public fears. And from that, laws to limit their position in the U.S. were enacted. In this way, the laws of immigration cannot be divorced from the politics that drive their creation. In addition to Congress, the executive branch plays a significant and sometimes less understood role in making immigration law and policy. Meanwhile, the judicial branch is largely immune from serving as a check because of a long-standing and complicated concept known as plenary power, which in a nutshell interprets the Constitution to grant the political branches, the legislative branch and executive branch, power and authority over immigration matters. For those seeking permanent legal status in the U.S., the laws restrict green cards to certain categories of people. Those coming here based on employment or a relationship with the U.S. employer. Those seeking to be here based on a family relationship. Those seeking protection from harm or torture in their homelands, also known as refugees in the immigration law. And finally, um, a smaller number are able to obtain status permanently through a lottery system, which truly does function like a lottery. Now, these categories are highly restrictive, in particular the employment and in family-based categories, because of numerical quotas that are in place per the INA. So if we think about college admissions here at Penn State, imagine there being a cap on the number of students that would allowed to be in. Um, there's a cap like that on the number of family and employment-based visas allotted per year. And there are severe backlogs in the immigration system. 
For family members, for example, people who are legally eligible to immigrate to the United States are waiting months, years, and sometimes decades to reunite with a family member. Under the employment category, for essential skilled workers in particular, these might include construction workers, those working in um, landscaping, hotel workers. There's a cap of 5,000 um, green cards a year for such workers. As for the refugee category, protection may be granted for certain people who can prove a well-founded fear of persecution. But the burden of proof is high, and the screening process is rigorous. An immigrant does not qualify as a refugee because of poverty or difficult economic conditions in his or her home country. These points are significant as we think about both the unauthorized population in the United States, which by recent estimates are about 11 million, and the question of why can't they just get in line. The reality is that there are very few ways or lines for the majority of unauthorized migrants to come to the U.S. legally. So who is this unauthorized immigrant population? Nationwide, they comprise of about 5.1% of the workforce. And in critical sectors like agriculture and construction, they make up 25% of the workforce. Nationwide, there are approximately 4 million U.S. citizen children with at least one unauthorized parent. A brief note about the agencies who administer immigration. The Department of Justice houses the immigration court system that's housed in a hub called the Executive Office for Immigration Review. This is a fiat of regulation, meaning that the immigration court system does not have the stature of, stat of a statute. The judges are not Article I judges with the kind of judicial independence that you might ordinarily think of when you hear the word judge. Meanwhile, the Department of Homeland Security plays a significant role when it comes to immigration enforcement and services. ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, manages enforcement on the interior, including detention, investigations, etc. Um, CBP, or Customs Border Protection, handles enforcement at the border. Um, it's also been merged with other federal agencies per Homeland Security Act, like Customs. Also within the Department of Homeland Security is a policy shop that handles the policy making that takes place at least with respect to enforcement and services. As for the services sector, that acronym, yes, there's a lot of acronyms, is known as USCIS, or United States and Citizenship Immigration Services, which manages the processing of green cards, asylum applications, applications for citizenship. And keep in mind that immigration is not the only issue handled by the Department of Homeland Security. When this cabinet-level department was created, 22 federal agencies were merged. 
With this backdrop, let's fast forward to the past six months, during which the news headlines and blogs have documented a dark chapter in immigration politics that feature stories on birthright citizenship, all things Arizona, detention, and journalists who are hungry to write the obituary on comprehensive immigration reform. On birthright citizenship, some have expressed a desire to amend the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which says in Section 1, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the U.S. and of the state wherein they reside. Proponents of this change want to discourage undocumented mothers from crossing our borders to give birth to children who have been derogatorily referred to as anchor babies, who by law today are U.S. citizens. On the subject of detention, one recent study by the Chicago-based National Immigrant Justice Center found after surveying the majority of immigration detention facilities that more than 80% of detainees are isolated and beyond the reach of legal aid providers. This is a big deal because the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for confining immigration detainees, detains about 400,000 immigrants annually who, legally speaking, are not guaranteed a lawyer in deportation proceedings. Meanwhile, such a large detention industry will call, cost the U.S. taxpayer $1.7 billion in this fiscal year. In the state of Pennsylvania, to put a local face to it, there are roughly 10 county jails across the state with whom ICE contracts the federal government to detain non-citizens under its custody. In fact, it's a lucrative business in a lot of localities. More than 700 of these non-citizens are held in York County Prison and commingled with the general prison population. On Arizona, supporters of Arizona's SB 1070 wanted to change the legal standard that has given the federal government total say over most immigration matters since the late 1800s under a doctrine known as preemption. The argument is quite compelling. Supporters of Arizona say that Washington has sol failed to solve immigration as a problem and so states ought to step in. Seems reasonable. Supporters also support a strategy called attrition through enforcement. And this concept is a vision that says that the more and more migrants constantly fear detention and arrest, well, the more they will leave on their own. That is the concept of attrition through enforcement. Nearly two dozen state governments, including Pennsylvania, have contemplated or introduced copycat measures like Arizona. According to a recent poll by Immigration Works, a pro-business federation, candidates in more than 25 states would draft similar laws if they were elected. 
Keep that fact in mind for later when I talk midterm elections. Starting next week, the Ninth Circuit will begin consideration of the Obama administration's lawsuit against the state of Arizona. The legal fees to the state of Arizona are staggering, and by some estimates, could be in the millions. So why all the fuss? And why all the frustration and legal fees and lawsuits? My thoughts, and borrowing also from Professor Roberto Saro, public frustration over immigration has been mounting since the last big push to overhaul the immigration system ended in a stalemate in June 2007 in the U.S. Senate. Particularly, the U.S. Senate was locked in a stalemate. After more than a year of political drama, including massive marches in 2006, a piece of legislation that had bipartisan support and support by the former President George W. Bush in 2007 that would have increased enforcement, offered a legalization program, and created a legal channel for people coming to the United States in the future to work or be with families, the bill died. Conservatives attacked the bill as amnesty for lawbreakers. And key Democrats who were vital to the vote and pushing the bill forward were split over the terms. Comprehensive immigration reform, as many proponents dubbed it, failed to get the 60 votes needed to move forward. And since then, nothing has really shifted the political climate, not even the 2008 presidential election, which changed so much else. As presidential candidate, um, Barack Obama promised to undertake comprehensive immigration reform during his first year as president, but he never really got into the details. And in the meanwhile, we lost a long leader in immigration, Senator Edward Kennedy. The result was a vacuum. And who filled the vacuum? Arizona SB 1070. So leaving aside Arizona and the details of what comprehensive should look like, having worked as a legislative lawyer, that could be a many years long discussion. Um, I do agree with policy makers and pundits who say that enforcement alone will not work. It has been the starting point for almost every immigration debate for almost 30 years and look how far it's gotten us. So just what will happen? Less than one week away from a midterm election, the prospects for positive immigration reform in 2010 are grim, largely because vulnerable candidates who may support immigration reform as a policy may find it too controversial a topic to represent a district, for example, that has constituents that may feel another way. Immigration advocates came very close to a victory in mid-September when Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid from Nevada intended to attach the DREAM Act bill to the Department of Defense Appropriations Bill. The DREAM Act is a fairly well-known bill. It would enable high school graduates who entered the United States as young children to regularize their immigration status by pursuing higher education or serving in the U.S. military. 
but that didn't have enough votes in the Senate to move forward. And according to some critics, was made toxic by certain senators who labeled DREAM as a breeding ground for terrorists and more illegal immigration. There is a history of certain politicians making immigration a sticky issue during election time. That politicians and media have turned migrating mothers into bad apples, their children into anchor babies, and Dream Act kids into terrorists speaks volumes to just how toxic immigration has become, and more unfortunately, how far politicians are willing to go. On the other end of the spectrum, President Obama vowed to keep his immigration promise as recently as this week. He and immigration advocates are now focused on the Hispanic vote, a crucial voting block in many states. And in a radio interview with Univision, one of the leading Spanish radio segments, Obama remarked that if Latinos sit out the election instead of saying, we are going to punish our enemies and we are going to reward our friends who stand with us, I think it's going to be harder. And that's why I think it's so important that people focus on voting on November 2nd. So where do we go from here? There are legal and policy fixes to immigration, which in my view would go a long way in fixing what many call a broken immigration system. I will not have time to go into the details today, but they include updating the family and employment-based quotas, creating a legal channel for newcomers coming in the future and those who may currently reside unauthorized after they go through a rigorous registration process, pay taxes and show they are here for the reasons that a piece of legislation may intend. Removing obstacles that prevent genuine refugees from gaining protection in the U.S. in the way that international laws onto which Congress has signed um, were intended. Restoring discretion in the administrative decision-making process, particularly on immigration courts, so that immigration judges actually have the authority to pardon or relieve individuals, including green card holders, who have compelling circumstances like employment, U.S. citizen children, family members, and other strong equities. Rethinking who the U.S. government should pay and detain, and considering alternatives borrowing for perhaps from the criminal justice model. And reforming the immigration court system so that judges are treated like judges and so that courtrooms actually operate like courtrooms, as opposed to what the nation dubbed last week as lawless courts. But even with the best policy solutions, there is a crucial need to shift the public discourse on immigration and will by the policymakers authorized to reform our laws. And for those of you who are still scratching your heads about why a law professor might have talked equally or more about immigration politics than about the law, it is intended to express my belief that 
achieving change and even being an effective immigration advocate through the law requires an explicit investment in understanding the language of law and the language of politics. This fact, this in fact, is the premise from which Penn State Law's Center for Immigrants' Rights operate. And finally, if I may put my civic engagement hat on for a moment, no matter what side of the debate you may fall in, here are a few things you can do. Um, vote next week, most certainly. Maybe learn more about the issue. Um, and there are a number of websites that do have anything from the social science-based research to the short and snappy bill at a glance on the issue. Um, consider the campaign Reform Immigration for America, which is one-stop shopping, if you will, at least for immigration advocates who are looking at changes comprehensively. And finally, for those who want to stay local, um, attend uh, a colloquium that the Center for Immigrants' Rights is having in early November um, to mark the 30th anniversary of the Refugee Act, at which um, key refugee experts and scholars from around the country will be discussing how refugee law has evolved in the U.S. and what some of the changes might be moving forward. And we've put some of these cards on the table in the front, so you can pick that up if you want to attend. So with that, I'm going to close, and thank you for your generous time. <laughs> so we're going to move into the questions now, and I'm sure you've got some in mind, and Chris is on this side of the room, and I'll field questions over here. So just raise your hand. Oh, right up here. Yeah. Okay. Um, students from abroad and green cards and quotas, um, are there any, what does it take for a student from abroad to come here to school? Right. Um, well, there are two main visa categories, and students generally fall under what is known as a non-immigrant category. It's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, but that um, relates to people who are here on a more temporary basis, like those who might be here for temporary work, an H-1B visa, or those who might come to study at Penn State, who generally would come in on an F-1 non-immigrant visa. Um, and so the processing part of it happens abroad and also um, here on the U.S., depending on whether they might be changing their status. A number of students and perhaps scholars, too, come under the J-1 um, non-immigrant visa as well, um, and they include even medical residents um, and um, visiting scholars and some students who fit within the special training program that meet the definition of a J-1 visa. Correct. Um, Chris, do you have a question on this side? Do we have? Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell, talk about uh, political asylum, and I understand that that can be revoked at any time. Um, a good question. Well, political asylum, it's a 
layered um, area of law, um, it is possible under the law for um, asylum status, um, which is uh, uh, someone who's been granted asylum in the U.S. is known as an asylee, to be terminated. Um, similarly, there are less permanent forms of what we might call refugee-related protection, like withholding of removal or protection under the UN Convention Against Torture, which people tend to lump together with political asylum because it's a refugee-related form of relief. Those forms of relief are actually even more vulnerable um, because someone who's been granted withholding of removal, for example, based on persecution, can be removed to a third country. Um, similarly, someone who's been granted relief under the Convention Against Torture can have their status terminated and in some cases um, be detained. Um, so it is technically possible um, to have refugee-related protection removed um, and the process includes less due process um, depend uh, the, the um, less you get um, the lesser form of relief you are granted we have a question right here uh, are there some research questions that are being addressed that could in an ideal world help to shape policy decisions a absolutely um, you know one uh, scholar's theory who I adopt, who's now currently at the EEOC, um, but prior to that ran a federal legislation clinic um, at Georgetown Law Center, um, produced a theory called the Six Circles of Theory and Legislative Lawyering. And she was um, instrumental in the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's a connection here. And um, in talking about the movement for passing the ADA, um, she talked about the very important and specialized roles that were needed to, to move forward with change. Chris, how about your side of the room? Then we'll... You do? Okay. Well, in the waves of immigration in the last century, people came to work. The, all over Europe, there were jobs, there were mills, there were factories, there were mines dirty, nasty work, which a lot of Mexican immigrants, I guess, do now. I, I read that there are no jobs in California, or they've really cut back on the jobs in California because of all the bankruptcies, and nobody's doing their lawns, and nobody's doing work, that people are actually not coming from Mexico because when they get here, they stand around and there's no work. Um, I've even seen estimates that we're going to see 20 to 30% unemployment in America for the citizens that are here. If there's no work, why are we trying to work to bring more people here? Or should it be tied to the fact that there are jobs? That's a, I really appreciate that question, and that actually gets to some good research as well um, that shows that people, when co people come when jobs are here. And so um, in, my <clears throat> in my view, the best comprehensive piece of legislation would have a market-driven legal channel that wasn't necessarily the same number every time, but um, went up when there was more demand for jobs and went down or not at all or at a freeze um, when the demand was low. 
Um, so the, the data does show that um, when there are fewer jobs, fewer people come. We have a question in the back here. Has there been any research conducted um, to gauge students' perceptions of the whole immigration issue as compared to the general public's at large, the standpoint of students, how they feel about the issue as compared to the general public? That's a really good question. I think there's been a related um, studies on the impact of, for example, 9-11 on the rate of international students and visiting scholars. Um, similarly, um, there is a huge, um, largely negative sentiment in the Muslim world um, when it comes to the welcoming or lack thereof nature um, of the U.S. Um, in terms of any studies on how U.S.-born students or all students in the U.S. Um, what they think about immigration. I'm not aware of any studies. Chris, anybody on your side? <laughs> then we'll come back here. Oh, at, oh, I'm sorry. I, one thing I should have mentioned is that the one exception is the coalition around the DREAM Act and high school students who are, um, who are here, who came in unauthorized, um, at a very young age and are now graduating from high schools. I would say there's a huge student advocacy movement and support from a number of even universities and colleges around the country um, around the DREAM Act legislation. And I wanted to clarify. Well, I was very taken with your remark about um, having a market-driven channel. And I take it you mean having that as one channel, there being other channels as well, uh, other processes whereby people could immigrate into the, uh, the United States. And I'm just curious, what would the other channels be? That's one question. And the other is recognizing that it'll always be a hot-button political issue. What could be done? What do you think could be done to make it a more rational, mm -hmm. rationally dealt with political issue? Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate that question. I, I'd say that in addition to this market-driven um, channel for work, let's just call it, um, I would maybe re-examine some of the existing channels um, and in some cases, expand them if necessary, in particular, the family-based immigration system. It is, imagine a university that has a quota of students being admitted that hasn't been updated in 20 years or more, right? That's, that's the kind of system that we're left with um, under the family system. Um, so I would look maybe at not necessarily adding more and more new legal ways to be here permanently, but re-examining and frankly modernizing and updating some of the ones that already exist. Um, with those who might come here for refugee-related protection, I think a number of restrictions have been placed in the law after 1996 um, that 
unfortunately turns away a number of people who genuinely fit within um, the U.S. definition of a refugee and the U.N. Convention on Refugees onto which the U.S. signed. Um, so that's another area where I think um, there could be a more generous set of laws, not necessarily by um, building, but by removing certain restrictions that exist. Did you, ha did you have a second question? Oh, what rational, that's right. So, goodness, well, um, if I, if, as my, one of my old bosses used to say, if I had my magic eight ball, right? Um, here's what I would say. I think first education is a great starting point forums like this. Um, but practically speaking, what if we don't get legislation for a long time? Where would I go after that? Um, there I would take a really close look at what some of the non-legislative solutions are that the administration has the authority to modify. I believe the executive branch has a meaningful role to play even without legislation when it comes to discretion, when it comes to enforcement. We don't have money in the federal government to deport 11 million people. In fact, by recent estimates, there are about there's, there are funds to remove 4% of the current removable population. So when we think about where immigration enforcement should go, I would take a really close look at targeting populations that are truly unwelcome, right, with violent or dangerous histories as opposed to those who are here to work. Um, similarly, there are programs like temporary protected status, um, and other creatures of the administration and regulation that the executive branch really has a lot of authority and jurisdiction in that doesn't necessarily require legislation. So I would look at those solutions. Um, in fact, I was um, really honored to be part of a working group that put together a transition blueprint for President Obama's transition team, um, really talking about all of the non-legislative solutions that could be enacted um, with or in the absence of comprehensive immigration reform, covering all the areas that we just talked about. We have time for one or two more questions, so let's take those. I think it's a short answer, and speaking of money, you mentioned earlier that Arizona was looking at a huge bill for legal costs. Was that only due to the federal lawsuit that's coming, or is it for more local things? You know, I, my guess, and I'm going to have to label it as my guess, is that it would relate to a whole host of lawsuits that it now faces, in particular, in particular those that um, they may appeal if they lose at the lower district court level. So, for example, a preliminary injunction was issued by a federal judge in the U.S. versus Arizona on key provisions of Arizona's law. Arizona appealed 
that decision. And now the Ninth Circuit is hearing arguments next week, and now they're paying a huge bill for that. And so there are lots of lawyers representing Arizona on Arizona's side, and lots of lawyers representing the number of lawsuits that have been brought against the law. And I think how they come out will also affect what states end up doing after the elections. Um, but I don't have a hard number on um, how the money they're spending is being allocated, although lawsuits is a big is a big one. Anybody else? I have a question that I'll squeeze in then. I wanted to go back to the, your comment about the prison uh, mm -hmm. population. So if I'm understanding right, there are uh, people being detained in prisons who don't have criminal backgrounds who are mixed in with the criminal population. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Is, and you suggested that perhaps there are other models we could turn to for solving that problem. Are there countries who do a better job of solving that? Or are there other models that you know of? What could be done to address that? Um, well, the um, most recent um, comparative model outside the U.S. has been in Australia. Um, but the U.S. criminal justice model, especially when it comes to release programs, um, is one model from which the Department of Homeland um, Agency could draw, and of course the criminal justice system is a whole other topic onto its own, right? Um, but the idea of alternatives to detention um, and the fact that it's both cost-saving to the taxpayer and perhaps a better way to have a tab on a population that you might want to keep tabs on but necessarily should, shouldn't necessarily be behind bars. And so currently some of those alternatives include um, electronic bracelets um, and GPS driven devices. And I'd say there are people on both sides of the debate as to whether that's a good alternative model. Um, other models being talked about include not necessarily having jail-like settings, um, but having um, more like a shelter setting or um, a community-based organization that could um, take care of housing, etc. Of course, on the other side of that, you have, well, now you're just creating kinder, gentler jails for, you know, women and children. I mean, pick your most vulnerable group. Um, and then the, I'd say the broader question is, do we even need any form of detention other than maybe periodic reporting um, every six months to an agency um, to make sure, I mean, really the balancing act is, are you gonna show up for your hearing um, or are you gonna flee, right? I mean, those are kind of the, the two questions that even an agency has to ask when they're um, balancing out um, the detention questions with um, some of the alternatives. And let's, um, is there a hand up of someone who hasn't asked to, uh, over here then, Chris. Um, as soon as prisons become profitable, and they have become profitable, then you have lobbies, and, uh, and Mexicans as well as uh, other prisoners, American prisoners, are uh, products to be bought and sold. They, they, uh, it's perpetuating. Market driven, yes, as she says. Right. 
So that was just a comment, not so much a question. <laughs> That's fine. It's an industry, and it can be somewhat troubling when, when it comes in the way of what's good policy, right? Okay, we, are, we have used up the hour, but please join me in thanking Shoba Wadia for a very thought-provoking conversation. And we have a little Research Unplugged mug oh, for you. Thank you. And um, I'll remind you again um, that Penn State Law is sponsoring the uh, 30th anniversary of the Refugee Act Colloquium. If you're interested, this is November 12th, and there are cards on the table in the front. Um, giving you more information that's free and open to the public then. It is. Registration's required, but it's otherwise open. So if you'd like to delve a little more deeply, and we'll also... It is. So if you haven't seen the new building yet, this is your opportunity. <laughs> Good opportunity to, uh, to delve in. And please join us next week for um, something completely different, an uh, afternoon of poetry and discussion with uh, a Penn State laureate. Thanks very much for coming. <laughs>